to episode six of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host, Henry Hyde, and this is a short clip from today's main interview. My, my learning, I think, from that, Henry, was that we are people who ultimately depend upon um, meaning. You know, we need to find things that, in our lives that give us meaning. And if if you don't, I think resilience depends in part upon whatever gives you meaning, whether it's a sense of purpose, dedication, faith, love of family, whatever. But if those aren't if those aren't nourished, um, then in a moment of profound crisis, we don't have them to draw upon, and and the results I think can be can be quite tragic. That clip featured the voice of Michael Peterson. Michael is a Canadian. Anglican vicar who uh, agreed to come onto the show. Um, it's not so much the fact that he's an Anglican vicar now that uh, caught my interest. It's the fact that he was previously a Canadian Army chaplain and, as you'll hear, dealt with uh, Canadian military people and personnel who were heading off to and returning from active duty. Uh, but more importantly, he has a very important personal life experience uh, that he wanted to talk about concerning the loss of his wife to cancer over a prolonged period, over a couple of years. I need to point out to you that some of the listening in the main interview is pretty harrowing stuff. Uh, Michael doesn't pull any punches and I didn't want him to because I think that the subject of how we face loss and grief uh, is an incredibly important subject and I didn't want to make light of it. Uh, however, I don't want you to get the impression that it's all doom and gloom because actually Michael's story is quite an extraordinary one as I'm sure you'll agree by the time you've finished listening to that interview. Uh, he's a lovely guy. He's a straight-talking-from-the-hip kind of guy. Ex-military, you might expect that. Um, but he, I found it um, a humbling experience listening to him recount uh, his life story. And I think that you probably will too. Um, so... Um, that's coming up in the main interview part of the show. That's Michael Peterson, who uh, is talking about primarily about grief and loss and how we deal with that. And also, uh, here's a heads up, how his faith um, helped him get through that experience. Um, this is not a show that pumps religion, absolutely not. And He's not the kind of guest who does either. Uh, very interestingly, as an Anglican, he's very open to the fact that there are other faiths in the world. There are other ways to spirituality in the world. And we talk a bit about that as well. So it's a fascinating interview. And I hope that you'll stick around to listen to him. Now, in this part of the show, I often, like I did last time, I'll review a book uh, or talk about something that specifically that's come up from my reading. Today I wanted to do something rather different, in fact inspired by Michael's story, because the subject of story is a really interesting one. Obviously stories are incredibly important things to us personally and culturally. Uh, I've got 
next to me on my desk here a little pile of books that I just grabbed off one of my shelves because uh, one of the things that I'm I like to do is I like to write and I have pretenses of being a, 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 a published fiction writer at some point. I've had non-fiction published, but I've got uh, desires to write uh, novels as well. And um, there's a name that comes up. Anyone who wants to write stories uh, of any kind, whether it's a movie script or a novel or short stories or whatever, there's a name that comes up, and that name is Joseph Campbell who is famous for writing a number of books. Uh, he wrote a book called The Power of Myth and another one called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And they deal with the fact that there, behind every great story, there tends to be a thread which could be traced back to ancient mythologies and legends. Um, the hero who undergoes various tests and trials to arrive back in his homeland, in his home village or city or wherever it happens to be, uh, with the boon, with the, with the treasure, as it were. Uh, and that story can take many, many different forms. I mean, when you think of that very simple storyline, the hero could be a man, a woman, an adult, a child, a human, an animal, an alien... Um, the the journey could be very short. I mean, it, it could almost be kind of metaphorical that the journey taken is inside the head. That's a good name for a show, isn't it? Inside your head. Uh, the journey could be inside your head um, and entirely metaphorical, psychological, if you like. It could be a literal journey. And in the way, when you think of a fantasy novel like The Lord of the Rings, for example, obviously it was a, a literal journey of thousands and thousands of miles to dump the ring into the fires of Mordor um, and then get home again. Many, uh, many journeys are kind of somewhere in between that. When you think of an average kind of Hollywood movie, I mean, all right, if it's Mission Impossible, the journey again takes you all the way around the world by plane, uh, boat and car and any other mode of transport you can think of. Um, but also there are many journeys that might be kind of much shorter than that. Um, and the journey and the, uh, the things that the hero has to endure during that journey, the tests they have to undergo uh, and the kind of people they meet who are often kind of archetypes. They're sort of figures representing certain aspects of humanity or whatever or the gods. Um, they are important figures that the hero makes contact with along the way and they uh, either try to prevent him from achieving uh, his goal or help him. Um, now that's kind of story writ large, isn't it? The kind of stories that you'll read in books or watch in the movies and other people have written about this kind of thing as well. I'm holding a book here by a chap called John York called Into the Woods, How Stories Work and Why We Tell Them. And there's another chap uh, called Christopher Fogler who's written a book called The Writer's Journey, The Mythic Structure for Writers. Uh, these are all available at all good bookshops, ladies and gentlemen. If you're interested in stories, I recommend that you go and get them. But there's another kind of story as well that I wanted to talk about, which I found, you know, as someone who is interested in stories and storytelling, hadn't really occurred to me 
uh, until, if you like, the the uh, build up to, uh, or the slide down to, rather than the build up to my breakdown in the early part of this year, and that is the stories we tell ourselves about the roles we play in our relationships, and. That's, uh, I think, a, a very interesting form of story because we create these stories within our head, obviously, to help ourselves to cope with life. We imagine ourselves to be a particular sort of person. We imagine the relationships we have to have particular qualities or characteristics. And... Um, one of the things that I realised, and this was in relation to my dearest friend, was that I had thought that I had seen and heard her and knew her extremely well. Whereas, in fact, I'd missed rather important clues along the way. Uh, I had missed certain... Uh, behaviours that ought to have given me clues about how she actually felt about the relationship, about the friendship. And the problem then becomes that your stories diverge. I think I've, there's a name I've mentioned on this show before, a chap called Rick Hansen, and he's wrote a brilliant book called Resilience, which is sort of my Bible, if you like. And he talks a lot about the importance of ensuring that in any kind of meaningful relationship that uh, you make sure that you're both, if you like, singing from the same hymn sheet, that your stories are convergent, if you like, rather than divergent, uh, because it can lead to all sorts of problems if they're not convergent, you know. Um, and he talks about speaking from the heart. And, I mean, often if you've got a close friendship with someone, you, th you think, well, I, I do tell the truth. I do say what I mean and so on and so forth. Um, but that's not always necessarily the case. Um, and he, there's a wonderful quote from the book here, Chapter 10, Courage. Uh, from the book Resilient. He talks about speaking from the heart. Think about a significant relationship. It could be with a mate, child, sibling, parent, friend or co-worker. If you felt let down, irritated or hurt, have you been able to talk about it? If you appreciate or love this person, have you expressed it? If you've been at fault sometimes, have you admitted it? When important things are left unsaid, it leads to resentment, loneliness and lost opportunities to discover your truth by speaking it. People in a relationship often don't say what they could about what's felt good and what's felt bad, and what they really wish would be different. They're like two boats floating near each other, and each undelivered communication drops between them like a heavy stone, with its waves pushing them further apart. Take a moment to think about the weight of what's been left unsaid in your relationships. What have the effects been on you and other people? And I think that ties in very nicely with what I'm saying about stories, that you 
can feel, particularly in a romantic relationship, I think you'd agree, that it's a bit like a Hollywood script. That the relationship begins, you fall in love with one another, you think the other person is the best thing since sliced bread, and you're already telling stories in your head about what the future could be like. Um, and it can work the other way too. When you look back on a relationship, you can realise that you have a story about what that relationship was like, what was good about it, what was bad about it. Obviously, if the relationship has ended, particularly if the relationship has ended acrimoniously, uh, and I'm, you know, divorce lawyers and divorce courts pay witness to this all the time, is that the two ex-partners, when they confront one another, clearly have very different stories about what that relationship was like. It could be that both of them have, if you like, horror stories that, um, sadly, the love and passion at some point evolved into a kind of hatred, resentment, sadness, which obviously is tragic. And somehow, in amongst all that, is the truth. Somewhere in between is the truth. I think we all know that if we have a friend who's been going through a bad time in a relationship and we give them the space to vent uh, and to let off steam and just, you know, not uh, in these situations, it's never a good idea to try and fix things for that person because in 99.9% .9 of situations you actually can't fix anything for that person the best thing you can do is just be there for them uh, but as we listen to this person letting off steam and getting upset and perhaps crying and um, perhaps even a bit of ranting and raving about the other person most of us particularly if you also know that other person are aware that what we're hearing from our friend isn't necessarily 100% the truth, with a capital T and a capital T, the truth. Because as we become more mindful in life and perhaps grow a bit older and a bit wiser, we become aware that no one individual is the guardian of the truth. We have our own versions of the truth. We have our own story to tell. And that's okay. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And we can make allowances, particularly if someone's hurting, for the fact that um, some of what they're saying may strike us as somewhat extreme. And as I say, particularly if we know the other person involved in that relationship um, and we know that they're not the devil incarnate, you know, they're not Lucifer here on Earth. Um, they are a fallible, frail, uh, fault-ridden human being who makes mistakes. 
in the same way as our friend is a fallible, fault-ridden, damaged individual who makes mistakes in the same way that we are fallible, frail, fault-ridden human beings who make mistakes all the time. And I've spoken before about, you know, since my breakdown, I've been doing the work and how the realisation comes that, you know, you're never going to achieve perfection. You're never going to be the perfect person. You're never going to be the perfect friend. You're never going to be the perfect lover or any of these things. But there is honour, if you like. There is value. There is worth perhaps in striving to be. The, the value is in the journey, even though the ultimate destination may ultimate be, ultimately be out of reach or unattainable. Uh, it's like you know, an Olympic athlete, someone who tr trains in athletics, may never be have the right stuff, as it were, to win the gold medal at the Olympic finals. But there is value in striving to improve ourselves. There is value in striving to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. And one of the things I've realised is that what can help is being aware that we are in the midst of our own story. We are the hero in our own story, aren't we? Uh, or if we're deeply depressed, as I know, we can be the villain in our own story. And the fact is, mm, neither's entirely true. The fact is, we're a character somewhere in between. What we are, though, and this was something that a discussion with my friend, my dear friend, threw up some months ago, is that what we are, if, even if we're not the villain or the hero, what we are is the director of our own movie. We are the producer of our own movie. We are the script writer of our own movie. And I think that this is a really important thing that because we, we have to watch out for this. We have to watch out for the fact that we can't control the characters in our lives because they're real, living, breathing people. We can't control them and we shouldn't try to control them. They are not there to read the script we've written for them word for word. We are, they are not there to obey the director's instructions you know, they're not there. You know, they might we might be screaming cut and they just keep going. Well, that's their right because they're living, breathing human beings. And it's only in our head that we kind of wish that, you know, why they've spoiled that moment. You know, why? Why did they have to keep talking as that song came on that would have made it just perfect? Now, this is just a, a silly example, but. We in our own heads, you know, and and a lot of us do. I, I mean, I love music. I have a huge Spotify playlist, which I now recognise to a certain extent can act as, if you like, the soundtrack to my own life. But it's the soundtrack to my life. It's not the soundtrack to anyone else's. You know, other people may share our taste in music and may go, oh, that's a lovely song, whatever, you know. But... Be their story is different. 
their soundtrack is different. Their script is different. And there may be moments where those scripts can kind of magically overlap word for word verbatim. You know, there are times in a relationship, if you're lucky, where it can seem to you like you've struck that perfect chord, you've had that perfect moment. But you need to keep in your head that it's your perfect moment, that it may not be the other person's perfect moment, that in that situation they might not be experiencing perfection at all. They might, oh, it's nice, you know. And this is what I've had to admit, and this is, you know, what my friends told me, that you know, I, I've talked about, oh, there, but there was that moment. Oh, yes, it was very nice. But it just didn't have the potency and power for her that it had for me. And this can happen, and so long as we're aware of it, and if you like, approach our lives with a bit of a sense of humour. <laughs> yeah, there was me. that was me getting carried away again, wasn't it? Rather than, oh my God, I'm devastated because I wasn't able to impart that perfection to this other person. This other completely individual, living, breathing person with their own thoughts and their own emotions. No surprise that those moments of shared perfection are so rare. No surprise that those glorious moments in our shared stories are so rare. So I would just say make the most of them when they do happen, but don't beat yourself up if you discover that they haven't been happening as often as you like. Okay, now we're going to go to the main interview featuring Michael Peterson. gentlemen and welcome to the interview for episode six of Inside Your Head which I'm recording on the 20th of September in 2021. My guest today is um, an extraordinary guy actually. He's had a very interesting life, a very interesting career uh, but he's come on to talk about uh, a very personal experience that he's had. Uh, focused around the subject of grief, which is obviously a subject that many people shy away from, but is something that at some point in our lives we all have to face, and usually we face it multiple times. And um, I think it's a subject that needs to be aired more readily, and uh, we need to be f feel free to talk about this kind of subject matter. And it helps us to prepare us all for what's inevitably going to come during our lives. And without further ado, let me introduce this chap to you. He's had um, a really interesting time because he's actually a retired Canadian Army chaplain 
And he's currently a vicar in the Anglican Church of Canada. And the subject of religion, faith, let's put it that way, the subject of faith will come up in this podcast, uh, but in a way that I hope that you'll all find agreeable and acceptable. There's not going to be any shoving of any messages down any throats during this show, I can assure you. Um, So let me introduce you to Michael Peterson. Hello there, Mike. Hi, Henry. How are you? I'm fine. And thank you so much for joining me. It's very early in the morning where you are, uh, because I'm here on the south coast of the UK in Hove. Uh, and it's kind of, oh, it's kind of half past 11 in the morning. But you're in Barrie, Ontario, I gather, over in Canada, not far from Toronto, where it's a lot earlier in the day. So thanks very much for agreeing to join us. You're welcome. I've already had my first uh, strong cup of tea, Yorkshire tea, if anybody's curious. Oh, so. wow. Excellent. Excellent. That yeah. makes you one of us, Mike. Makes you one of us. <laughs> yeah. um, now, I think um, particularly in your case, because you've you've had a really interesting life. And as I say, that you you served as a, as a as a chaplain, as a padre in the Canadian army for quite some time. And you're now an Anglican vicar. So I think, uh, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from originally, and perhaps a, a a little bit about your early life and education before you joined the army. Sure. Um, I was born in uh, the early 1960s. Uh, I was the uh, younger son of older parents who'd already had children. My uh, my father was a Canadian Army officer, and my my mother was English. She was a war bride. They met um, they met in uh, England early on in the war, and. <clears throat> We went from posting to posting in my early childhood, mm-hmm. uh, including four or five years in uh, Zost uh, in West Germany mm-hmm. back in the Cold War. So the army was in my blood. Uh, after my dad left uh, the army uh, in the early 70s, he had an itinerant career as a high school teacher and um, a functional alcoholic. So we were always moving from town to town. Mm-hmm. And um, so I picked up from him. Uh, both a, a fascination with all things military and a, a love of literature. Mm. And we mostly traveled around um, Western Canada and the province of British Columbia, uh, which was where I finished high school and went to university. I did try the army early on in the 1980s, but then it was all about killing Russians. And <laughs> I'd, I'd never met a Russian. And I thought, well, you know, and, and I was, as a student, I was quite active in the disarmament movement Um, because as as you recall Henry being of a similar vintage to me in the early 1980s we thought a lot about being incinerated yeah and uh, so I I I went another route I went um, I chose the second of my father's interests and went the academic route and got a PhD in English literature and and taught for a few years but I I found it um, a profoundly dispiriting experience. I never got tenure and uh, I I wasn't, I realized I just wasn't temperamentally suited for the cutthroat world of academia. Mm. And uh, after a, an early divorce um, and a bit of a crisis of faith, because I was raised uh, in the Anglican church, my, mm. my mother was quite devout. I was, you know, an altar boy in the whole, oh, right. the whole thing. Thought about being a priest as a very young man, but um, like a lot of Bright young people at university, I fell away from the faith, went through a divorce in my early 30s, Mm. um, kind of had a profound um, bottoming out period, Mm. Um, came back to um, came back to the church, uh, which for me was was an experience of, um, you know, of healing. And then uh, uh, started in the Anglican church. I was ordained uh, early in the 2000s. 
and um, was invited to do some work with the local army reserve and found my way back unexpectedly into the military. And uh, at that time, um, you know, it was just around the time of 9-11 and we were, Canada was embarking on our Afghan adventure. So it it all seemed to kind of come together for me as an opportunity both to live out a vocation and to serve the country and to Mm. be a soldier after a fashion. So there you go. Uh, That's Wow, that's a fascinating journey you've taken there already, Mike. Um, so you became an army chaplain. Um, did you actually do tours overseas? No, I, I, you, you sold a bill of goods to your listeners, Henry. I'm not really a very fascinating period uh, chap, actually. If there was a medal called Never Left Canada, I, I would have it. <laughs> uh, I, I had my hand up for Afghanistan uh, all through the time we were there, which was from about uh, the early two, around 2002 is when our Afghan mission started. Mm. We finished um, in 2011 before a lot of the other NATO countries did. Mm. Um, what I was involved in, Henry, was um, what we called rear party work. So I, I worked uh, as a chaplain with soldiers who were preparing to deploy. I worked mm. with them after they returned. Uh, I did a lot of work with families on mm. bases and... Um, so that was my contribution. It was a, uh, I, I was involved in a few notifications of casualties and a couple of military funerals. Right. So I sort of saw it all from the back end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. In some ways, I mean, knowing something about um, PTSD and you know the military myself, we should perhaps explain that we uh, we've never met before today, but we actually have a connection through a hobby which is related to kind of military stuff, military history, and so on. Um, but. Uh, I've because I've been involved with uh, raising funds for a charity called Combat Stress for many years. Um, I understand something of probably the kind of work that you've been involved with, particularly you know with returning veterans and that kind of stuff. So, I think perhaps could you tell us a bit more about that experience, Mike? Because that um, I, I mean, that's particularly of interest to me, but I think for, probably for a lot of our, our listeners as well, that they may, you know, people who've not had any connection with the military probably don't understand the role of a of a, of a military chaplain. They don't quite understand uh, the, I mean, okay, you, you were on what might be termed the home front during, you know, the, the Afghan adventure and what have you. But still, um, in, in some respects... I see that as quite a difficult role uh, because I've seen this many times in documentaries where it's actually, you know, the, the people who were left behind are, of course, um, suffering all kinds of stresses about the people who they've had to say goodbye to who've gone travelled thousands of miles, in your case, way across the other half of the planet, basically, and are... You know, as happened during the war, you know, waiting for people to come back home, worrying about them, what might be happening and that kind of stuff. So I imagine that your uh, duties of pastoral care, as I suppose it, it, it must be called, would have been quite wide ranging, Mike. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, absolutely, Henry. Um, uh, as chaplains, uh, we, were, uh, we worked with uh, teams that uh, we learned to set up over time. Uh, which would include uh, social workers uh, who are general, sometimes military, sometimes civilian, um, mental health professionals from the base clinic. And uh, we would try to set up what we called care groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would 
be liaisons between um, the deploying regiments and uh, the um, usually a regiment or a battle group would designate a rear party uh, staff that would um, do kind of community relations work. So mm-hmm. we we worked with the, the rear party staff. We regularly stayed in touch with um, the family members and uh, most of the services that as chaplains we provided were not explicitly religious. Mm-hmm. In fact, that I, I would say that's probably true of 80% of my job, Henry, mm-hmm. uh, when I was in service because most people in the military as in civilian life are, are secular. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the one thing that a, a good chaplain brings to the table is that uh, <laughs> this is certainly not true of all clergy, um, but we, we are we are ideally are supposed to be good at people skills. Right. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be good at communication. We're supposed to be good at empathy. Um, yeah. And uh, you know that's something that I did learn in the parish, um, in my civilian work before I joined the military. And sometimes just having somebody who's available to talk to and hear, you know, fears to hear concerns, mm-hmm. um, both of family members and of, of people before they deployed and when they came back. Mm-hmm. One of the best things I did. Uh, I had a, a deal with my colonel at one point in the battalion I belonged to where we had a whole lot of people who were deploying sort of in small groups. Mm-hmm. They were augmentees for, you know, because this was a reserve unit, they were augmentees to a regular force task force. And they would come back in dribs and drabs. And I, I had a deal with my colonel where I would say, let me take your chaps to um, uh, a pub lunch and we'll just chat. Sometimes those conversations lasted uh, two, three hours and, uh, they were always very interesting, and um, you know, I think I learned a lot from how people handle the stress. Most soldiers are quite stoic. Yeah, they would say things like, "You know, Padre, I, I'm so glad I live in Canada, where my family doesn't want for anything. I saw things in Afghanistan that I can't believe people live that way." And mm. um, our combat role was not. Uh, as intense in some ways as the British Army. We had a couple of really bad times where mm. we, I remember Easter Sunday, 2000 and 2008, we lost uh, we lost six people on one day. Yeah. And um, that, was a, that was a really bad day. But mm. most of our casualties were, you know, in twos or threes over the space of years. So there wasn't that kind of intense yeah. experience. But I, I did work with people who, who were touched by um, the loss of a friend, they, they, the loss of a body part. Mm. Uh, they were experience, They experienced a roadside ambush or an IED, and they were mm. sorting that out. And often just having somebody to come alongside them and listen to them mm. without wanting to push a religious solution on them, mm. uh, I think they found that profoundly comforting. Mm. I, I remember one conversation just very quickly where I talked to a uh, a fellow who was involved in, he was an Air Force technician, He, the chap who bombed up airplanes. Right. And he was working, uh, I think, the incident he told me about was in the, when the Canadian Air Force was supporting the operations against the Gaddafi regime in Libya. Right. And somebody had actually shown him um, this this very grainy but very precise camera footage of a weapon strike. I don't, I don't know how he'd got his eyes in front of it, but he saw, you know, the little, we've all seen the footage, Henry, yeah, the little yeah. before the bomb explodes. Yeah. And he, um, he said that could have been my bomb. And he was haunted by that. Absolutely haunted to the point almost of disabling guilt. Wow. Uh, I remember talking to him about how, um, 
it was a, a huge, I just admitting the reality of the burden that he was carrying and, mm-hmm. and trying to explain to him in very simple terms that, that he was a victim of what we call moral injury. Yeah. The fact that, you know, sometimes soldiers are, are called upon to do things that even though they're in keeping with her training, have a profoundly damaging effect on the human soul. Sure. You know, I've done that to people and, and I, it wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't very successful, but I did, he was quite secular and I, I did try to talk to him about the fact that in, in the great religious traditions, there are, there's language and ritual about forgiveness and absolution, mm-hmm. but, and I offered that as a possibility. He wasn't quite interested and, and I, I'm afraid at the end of the day, I, I wasn't much help to him except to listen. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of, that's the kind of burden that a lot of our people carry, mm-hmm. I think. Underneath the bravado and the of the soldier, and underneath the, the the technical accomplishments of superb training, there's always, I think, the the residue of, um, mm. you know, what have I done? And I know from my own father's service record in Korea and World War II that he was involved in actions where he personally directed fire. And mm. in one case, you know, he was awarded the Military Cross for killing several Chinese soldiers during a, a firefight. Goodness, I think that you know, in some way might explain my father's alcoholism that I referred to earlier, right? Yeah. That generation had very few tools or, or, or ways of expressing that mm. um, kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's, that's the kind of work I did. Well, I mean, that's it's very moving hearing that from you. And I, it, as I've said, because of my involvement with combat stress, it's the kind of story that I've heard a number of times and of course those of us who read a lot of military history and stuff I mean we've I think particularly since kind of uh, the Falklands War and certainly since Iraq onwards there have been some extraordinary autobiographies published where and and of course now the guys are out there wearing helmet cams and that kind of stuff you you know it's it's it you're there in this first person involvement in exactly what's going on and as you say those haunting pictures of the laser guided missiles and bombs you know where it's gray 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 and then you see this little blur come in and then boom and you have to sit back and think that is not a video game there were people inside that building inside that hut or whatever it happened to be or inside that vehicle and uh, this is not a joke and it's it's very interesting mike um this i mean it must have given you some real insights into human nature and human psychology uh listening to these guys i mean because one of the other things about the military that of course we have to kind of point out is these are guys and women who are trained to be killers you know, these are these are people who are trained to be macho and stoic and to put up with put up with situations that the average human being, of course, <laughs> put in that situation would quite naturally and quite rightly, it has to be said, run away from or, you know, dig a hole and bury themselves in there. These are these are the kind of people who run towards danger. That's the kind of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the most extraordinary thing. And, and um, many years ago. When I was much younger, I nearly joined the military myself. I was I was considering being an officer in the Royal uh, Royal Horse Artillery. Could have gone to the Falklands, you know. That, that was my wake up call. It's like, whoa, you sure that's what you want to do with your life, Henry? You know. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of 
really interesting kind of anthropological tribal stuff mixed up with this as well. This this sense that as a man, you know, what's the ultimate test of of manhood, you know, and well, there can't be anything more than facing the chaos of war. But and this throws up all kinds of interesting subject matter that we haven't got time to talk about today. But I would be really interested to hear from you what insights you felt you gained from your experiences as an army chaplain. You know, how did it did it change you? Oh, um, it it probably did, Henry, in in ways that I haven't quite as fully appreciated. I, I certainly saw changes in my chaplain colleagues who went to Afghanistan. Mm. And, uh, they were all touched in, um, in, in, I would say, ways that had that were damaging. They came back um, somewhat bitter. I, I know some of them experienced profound crises of faith themselves. Mm. In my sense, I, I didn't feel a sense of damage, but I, I I learned a couple of things. I think I learned um, that the idea of resilience is is a fascinating and very individual thing. Mm. Some people just seem to have a capacity for um, resilience that others lack, and and we 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 were talking a lot about that just before I retired in the chaplaincy mm. and in the military about what resilience means and and can it be fostered or strengthened. Mm. I saw chaps who. Um, had lost legs in roadside bombs who couldn't wait to get one of those springy, curvy legs that you see. Oh, right, for sprinters, yeah. So, yeah, so they could run marathons. I saw other people who had suffered less physical damage but but were embittered and, and angry and uh, had no way of clawing their way out of that mm. and and were, were kind of shells of themselves. Uh, and um, my... My, my learning, I think, from that, Henry, was that we are people who ultimately depend upon um, meaning. You know, mm. we need to find things that, in our lives that give us meaning. And mm. if if you don't, I think resilience depends in part upon whatever gives you meaning, whether it's a sense of purpose, dedication, faith, mm. love of family, whatever. But if those aren't, if those aren't nourished, um, then in a moment of profound crisis, we don't have them to draw upon. And, and the results, I think, can be can be quite tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I'm thinking back to was episode two of this show where I uh, interviewed Susie Christensen, who's a psychotherapist, and she was talking about the importance of story uh, the, 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 and the way that stories can be used therapeutically and and i think this ties in nicely with what you're saying there about meaning and we'll talk more about that a bit later uh because yes i think particularly for those kind of people who join the military there's a kind of they're probably driven by a sense of honor and patriotism and all those kind of things which are very much wrapped up with meaning aren't they and i think this is you're absolutely right that sometimes they're confronted with situations that they just come away from thinking well what was the point of that you know and and of course what's happening right now with you know what's going on in afghanistan and you know there's a lot of british guys who i know who served over in afghanistan uh, and are basically seeing the work that they felt they'd done for good just being torn apart at the seams you know must be very hard to deal with even though many of them 
you know, left Afghanistan years ago. Um, and But that's going to be an ongoing problem for charities like Combat Stress. Absolutely. Thank you for those insights there. And, of course, then you... So then you made the transition back into civilian life, Mike. You know, so when was it that you you, you quit being an army chaplain and decided to go back to being a vicar? Well, I I retired. um, I retired from the military just over a year ago, Henry. And uh, it was partly it was I I knew that I was just running out of road because Mm. in our military, mandatory retirement is 60. Right. And I was I was 57. But the events that I, I think I, I I waved my hand at you to talk about kind of were intervening because in the last um, five or six years of my career, um, I I was profoundly touched by uh, the death of my wife Kay and uh, that um, and the the kind of the outcome of that which in some ways is a I hope by the end of the story I'll tell you that everything I'm going to say had a happy ending but mm-hmm. I. I met uh, another uh, another person who was also touched by grief, uh, uh, a widow who lived in Barrie, and I had never planned on living here. I planned because Barrie is a is a also a military town. There's a very large Canadian Forces training base right. base warden nearby wh- where I was posted, and uh, I suddenly found that my life had a new chapter, which mm. made me you know say farewell to the military, but I was still young and youngish mm, mm. In, in church terms. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my bishop uh, told me, uh, you know, well, if you're bored, I can find work for you. And uh, I kind of felt the need to go back to uh, the civilian parish and maybe try to take a bit of what I'd learned about life and apply that. So, yeah, that's sort of what I'm doing now. But I'm I'm in a sort of semi-retirement mode, Henry, where I'm what we call an in- interim vicar. I look right. after ch- churches that are going through periods of transition and right. yeah and it's a very pleasant life i have to say all right well that's yeah. i'm glad to hear it sounds like you deserve it after all <laughs> everything you've been through yeah. so I, I think um that um it's probably time that we bring up that subject that you just mentioned so beautifully sure. in passing yeah. there that you had uh, you know, the, and the and the core of the meaning of this show, if we're going to talk about meaning, is you know to do with grief and dealing with grief and how your life had prepared you for that and what you learnt about that because of uh, the the passing of your late wife. Yeah. So go ahead, Mike. You know, tell us that story uh, about what happened in your experience of that and what you learnt along the way. Sure, I will. I'm happy to, Henry. I have to say this is the first time I've talked about it uh, to uh, to a stranger, really. So bear with me if if um, I get choky a bit. But sure, um, I'm gonna, I want to tell you a little bit about Kay first of all. So I, I mentioned that I was divorced as a young man. Mm. Um, in the uh, 1990s, I met I met Kay, who was also divorced. Uh, she was an American who had ended up settling in Canada because. Um, she couldn't. She felt she couldn't live in her country for all sorts of reasons. She was a scientist. We met at university. Oh, we were right. polar opposites. You know, she was very practical and hard-headed, and I was sort of artsy fartsy. <laughs> and um, she was strong. And I learned as we got together um, that she had her own mental health issues. Um, at first, I kind of thought it was um, uh, she would just sort of bounce between extremes of you know, sort of manic behavior and uh, then 
depressive, passive behavior. And mm. over time, Henry, I learned that uh, Kay was actually, and she was officially diagnosed as being bipolar. Right. Uh, so it wasn't always an easy relationship. Sure. Um, but I learned that uh, when you're living with somebody who's going through mental health, um, there are ways in which you can be supportive. And if you love the person, um, you're in it for the long haul. Yeah. And, uh, one of the, the interesting things about Kay was that she, she was, uh, she was raised in the American deep South and in a very religious conservative family, but she wanted to be a scientist and she, um, she felt she had to ditch, mm-hmm. uh, her, her faith to do that. Um, then she met me who was <laughs> going to seminary at the time, <laughs> you know, she said, there's no way in hell I said to God I was ever going to be a minister's wife. And <laughs> she said, there's no way in hell I said to God that I was going to be a soldier's wife, and now it's both. <laughs> uh, so I said, yeah, I guess that just shows that God has a sense of humor. Um, and she uh, she came to the uh, uh, Back to Faith in the Anglican Church simply because she felt, I finally am at a church where I can also believe in dinosaurs and science, Yeah, which yeah. is... You know, I, we said at the beginning, Henry, we wouldn't get preachy, but just to lay my cards on the table, I'm the sort of Christian who's quite happy saying you can also believe in evolution and dinosaurs and um, the existence of other faiths. Glad so to that's, hear it. That's, that was sort of where, where she landed. And it was, anyway, um, so in 2005, sorry, 2015, I had to write down a little chronology to keep track of it all. Yeah. We'd had a bad few years. Um, Kay had had a, a, a breakdown, which led to her being diagnosed with bipolar. She finally met the right psychologist. She was on the right medication. Right. She, All of the things about her that I loved came back into focus, and it was a mm-hmm. wonderful time. Uh, the Army had paid me to go to university for two years and do a, a, a master's degree in um, interreligious dialogue, oh, and wow. I really enjoyed it. It was a great time. We lived in a university town called Waterloo. Mm. And just as we were finishing my degree and I was being posted to uh, Borden as an instructor at the Canadian Forces Chaplain School, Kay was uh, found a doctor who thought that some of the longstanding issues she was having about abdominal discomfort and mm. uh, the pain that had sort of made um, intimacy kind of problematic mm. um, was probably an ovarian cyst. So she was scheduled for surgery and May of that year, it was just just as I got my orders to move to to Borden and start working there mm. later in the summer. Mm. So the the surgeon said, you know, you probably just have bits and pieces that you don't need anymore as a lady of a certain age. So let's get rid of them. And when they opened that up, they discovered she actually, in fact, had ovarian cancer, oh, and a, of a particularly bad and, and invasive mm. uh, variety. Mm. So um, here we were. We were about to move to a new town. I was going to start a new job. And I discovered that my wife had cancer. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. We had all of the relocation stuff to worry about. Kay got through the surgery well. She started on chemo. Mm-hmm. We, we were able to, just after her first dose, we were able to take a, a bit of a trip to Europe. Mm-hmm. So um, that was good. I noticed coming back through the airport in Reykjavik, because she always wanted to see geysers in Iceland, that oh, she right. was really, really tired. And, and that was mm-hmm. the first time that I saw the effect that the chemo was having on her. And then we went through all of the usual chemo stuff, you know, the hair loss and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, but uh, the, we, my, my, my employer was very, very, my boss, uh, was very good about giving me time off for chemo days. And, and, um, you know, I saw sort of saw the camaraderie of the chemo r- ward, right. Where they put you in these chairs for 
hours and they put these bags of horrible poison into your arm and mm -hmm. usually spouses or friends come along and, and there's kind of a camaraderie of, you know, the chemo ward. And I yeah. remember going with people for coffee and so forth. And we were all going through this strange journey together. Yeah. And, you know, doctors, unlike the movies, Henry, don't give you detailed prognosis. You know, they don't say, well, you know, you have so many months or weeks or years to live. They're, they're always very guarded. Yeah. And they're always saying, well, we'll try this treatment and we'll see what happens. And they never tell you, you know, that you're actually, they never tell you how, how grim things are. But I knew enough to know that it was the, the certain kinds of ovarian cancer, your life expectancy could be measured in months or maybe years at the most. And yeah. anyway, so we got through chemo. Um, uh, in 2016, we had a, we had the first half of the year was pretty good. Uh, but then Kay started having um, abdominal issues. She was struggling with diarrhea and discomfort. Yeah. We met a we, we went to see an abdominal specialist who said he probably thought she was on a um, she was experiencing either gl uh, gluten or lactose intolerance, right. which was an appalling misdiagnosis. Um, he knew that she was uh, um, she had ovarian cancer, and, and he just seemed to ignore it. And Henry, I think this is true of a lot of older people, mm. because by then, you know, Kay was a bit older than me. She was she was starting to present as a frail old lady. Right. And uh, I I think people like that just get very short shrift from the medical profession in many cases. So right. um, the long and short of it is that um, early in November, um, she couldn't take water or food and was diagnosed with having a, an intestinal blockage because of the tumor. It had nothing to do with gluten or, or, mm. or lactose. It was just the tumor spreading through her abdomen. Mm. And that I learned in, in afterwards is sort of a natural progression of ovarian cancer. It, mm. it invades the body cavity and shuts mm. down the intestines. And that's what mm. happened. Kay had two surgeries in um, November. They were really, really touch and go. There was her her intestines perforated twice, oh, so they had goodness. to go in twice. They left her with two um, uh, ostomies, mm. and uh, I remember when I was told that um, I, I had a friend who uh, had an ostomy, and I knew that Angus just had this you know little bag under his pants that made gurgling mm. noises. I was good with that, but I never really wanted to see the reality of it. Mm. And that that was very challenging, yeah. um, particularly because the the they call it the stoma. I'm going to be a bit graphic for a second, if that's okay. We're no, that's little... that's fine because my uh, my my partner Anne actually has Crohn's disease okay. and very came very close to needing yeah that kind of surgery. Well, it's exactly it's very similar to Crohn's, Henry, and God bless you for dealing with that. Um, some stoma are different than others, but it's a little bit of of your intestine that pokes out of your, the surgeons tuck it out of your, outside of your abdomen and yeah. you put a bag on it and that takes care of, that takes care of your, uh, your needs to excrete. But, you know, not all stoma are created equally. Caves wasn't super viable and it meant that we struggled for, you know, to keep the, the, the appliances on. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a, it was a huge challenge for, for Kay. It was, um, it, she found it degrading and, uh, um, you know, you were always careful about how you go out in public. Sure. And um, anyway, uh, one of the things that helped us both and helped me certainly was finding a, 
a support group for for helpers of people with ostomies who are they, they call them ostomates, which was lovely. Yeah. And and it was good to go to some of those meetings and and meet people who were in a similar situation and stop feeling sorry for myself. And mm. you know, there's a certain um, one of the things that got me through this, Henry, in part, was just the the fact that one bloody day fo- is followed by another, and you've got to get up and do yeah. the things. And if the the ostomy appliance fails in the middle of the night, and you've got to replace it, and you've got to wash the sheets, and, and yeah. you know, change the bed and get back to sleep. Well, that's what you do, right? Yeah. Because there's no other there's no other choice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I didn't mention that Kay was diabetic as well. She when I met her, she had type one diabetes, but that led to another complication, which the story gets a little more horrific. Um, she had an ulcer in her foot, um, which it was a kind of a hole that sort of got bigger. And, yeah. and diabetics, to begin with, have compromised circulation. So yeah. that, on top of her suppressed immune system because of her cancer, meant that eventually the the it spread and. Um, all through the summer, we did manage one train trip across Canada, which is something she'd always wanted to do, and that was mm. that was kind of uh, our last holiday together in the summer of 2017. But in September, the ulcer got so bad that the, an infection had spread, and, and the doctors determined they had to amputate her left leg above her knee. Oh, and then she was in hospital for, for two months, yeah. in which the cancer flared up again, and, and she was struggling to eat. And so, um, to make a long story short, they sent her home in November of 2017, um, basically to die. And uh, Kay decided that she wanted to die at home. And uh, we had a month together at home, and uh, she passed away November 25th, 2017. And I had really excellent help from um, family who were able to come and be with us, hers and mine, as well as uh, the medical team that was assigned to us, the palliative care doctor and nurse were excellent and they, they helped us manage the pain and mm-hmm. she had a very peaceful end. So, um, so that was, <laughs> that was my experience of cancer. Um, it's a horrific beastly disease. Yeah. I, I, it was a death that I wouldn't have wished on, um, on anybody. Yeah. But I, I think maybe, what what got what got us through it is probably the question that I think that I'd like to try to unpack with you. Sure. Um, as I said, part of it was just the the you know when you're when you're a partner of somebody in that situation, and I mm-hmm. I think you probably know something about this. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's either fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm always horrified to hear those stories of, and often they're always about men, but not all, mm-hmm. mostly about men. Who just bail on their spouses when they they come they come across a, uh, an illness like cancer, right? I just don't mm. understand that. Mm. You know, if you commit to being with somebody through better or for worse, you know that for better or for worse yeah. is a package deal. And and um, I, in retrospect, Henry, I found that it was enormously satisfying to be case provider because mm. um, that's when our, our I think in some ways they were the best years of our marriage because we had lots of time to talk. We had a long goodbye. I've known people who've lost their spouses in accidents or through sudden heart attacks. And there's so much left unsaid. So we had, we had all the time in the world to say goodbye. And that was a blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that, that 
for Kay more than me, and, and this is ironic because I'm the vicar, mm. but Kay's faith gave her a kind of serenity that I have very seldom seen. Mm. Um, I've been, I've been in, in people's hospital rooms where they're, they're, um, they're crying like children when they know they're going to die. They're terrified, they're frightened, yeah. or they're angry and sullen. There was a serenity about Kay that, that um, I found almost luminous. Mm. And, and friends, of ours, friends of ours commented on that as well. She very seldom complained except to say, you know, it hurts me to sit this way or that way. Mm. But, you know, there was never any kind of self-pity. Mm. And, um, you know, her, uh, I remember her sitting with uh, our friend Julia, who was our priest at the time, sort of planning the readings for her funeral and saying that she wanted her funeral to be uplifting and mm. and um, encouraging. And, and I thought, to my, I couldn't bear it. I could, I, 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 I had to go away and in another part of the house because I found that conversation it was both beautiful and, and bitter at the same time yeah. um, you know so that for me at the time I think I struggled um, I struggled I didn't struggle in the sense of you know why God had inflicted this on mm. Kay I don't believe that I don't believe that it works that way mm. but I, I just there were lots of lots of um, you know days where I was just tired and weary and sad, constantly sad mm. with watching your loved one go through um, this kind of, uh, this kind of agony, this mm. kind of indignity, um, you know, and there's still some things, there are still a couple of incidents about it that haunt me to this day that if, if I, if I let myself go and think about them yeah. with, all of, with all of the clarity that they still have in my memory, it's, you know, I, I've just learned that the, those are, Things that I just have to keep in a trunk. Yeah, that was actually something that a counselor helped me come up with at the time. She said she was quite clever. She said, "You're a soldier, right? You have these big foot lockers." And I said, "Yeah, we do. Call them barracks boxes." She said, "Well, I want you to keep your keep a barracks box and just take all of the bad memories and all of the bad things that happen and just keep them in that box until the time that you can deal with them. Yeah. Because you don't have time to you don't have time to go through them right now." And that yeah. was really that was really good advice. So, yeah. yeah. That, that resonates with me. I mean, there's still more to talk about for you. But, uh, and there's so many things you've said among, uh, in amongst all that that, uh, you know, resonate very powerfully for me. Um, when my partner was diagnosed with Crohn's and she was desperately ill, I thought I was going to lose her. And there were certain indignities visited, visited upon her, which... Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, sometimes it's inevitable. You're dealing with a huge institution like the National Health Service, and with the best will in the world, people are rushed off their feet. They're understaffed. Stuff happens. Uh, but still, when it's your loved one, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's something you can feel really incensed about and find difficult to process. And it's interesting what you say about the Footlocker thing. There's a uh, in a different contest says there's a friend of mine who's just been through a really difficult divorce uh but she works you know kind of with psychology and stuff a lot and she i remember her talking to me about there's certain things that she's just decided to put away in in a box i think she called it in a box to deal with later when she's better able to you know so that's that's very interesting the, the other thing is that um 
I, you know, I, I kind of wanted to raise and wondered how you felt about it because it can happen that when you or your loved one is going through something awful like this, it can so easily happen that you you feel like you're being defined by your disease. You're being def- you 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 you're not an individual anymore. You're not a personality anymore. You're oh, you're the person who's got that awful cancer or whatever, mm. and that is a lot to do with. The, the other people around you and their coping mechanism because they're being freaked out by what's happening to the person that they care about and they don't know how to express themselves mm-hmm. how do you did you experience that that other people i mean you 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 mentioned that there's some people were wonderful and lots of you had support and so on and so forth but there are other people who however well-meaning they're they're not ready for it right they don't know how to deal with that yeah yeah yeah, that's that's true, Henry. It's very true. Um, I think the the people that rallied around us the most were the people who understood Kay and appreciated her for the person she was. Mm. Um, and Kay was um, uh, passionate about gardening. Mm. She loved to knit. She loved cats. Um, so the the we had several friends and. Um, relatives who would constantly send us cards or notes or little gifts that that had some of those themes right that Mm. that touched upon the things that were dear to her Mm. and they also came those friends came not only from our family and from our immediate network but they came from people we'd never met before and that was one of the things that helped sustain me through it Mm. so we talked about this mutual hobby that we have and um the thing about the hobby that that and, and I think this is true of many hobbies as well, um, is that you, you build these networks and friendships out of common interests. Yeah. And um, I had, uh, you know, a, a blog where I kind of talked about my own you know, little projects and, you know, look at this little soldier that I painted. Isn't it cool? And other people mm. say, yeah, that's really cool. And I, I found that that became a place where I started just talking about the things I was going through because you, not everybody is wants to be your friend or your mate, but you meet mm-hmm. people through your hobby that mm-hmm. that you deeply relate to, right? And you mm-hmm. you uh, you identify with and you, you like. Mm-hmm. So people started um, hearing me saying, you know, I'm really struggling with this right now. I wish I had more time to paint or to play games, but I'm mm-hmm. focused on caring for my wife. And, and people would send total strangers or, or, or people that I, I, or people that I were, was friends with, but I only knew through wargaming blogs would send mm-hmm. us things. So I got gardening books from a friend in Dublin that I subsequently met a few years later, but I never met him personally. I got cards from a chap in Spain. This lovely woman in, in England, who was the wife of a wargamer, when she found out that Kay was a knitter, Henry, she she went to her yarn shop and bought these beautiful, you know, British steel needles and a package of really lovely yarn, put it in the post. Wow. Just said, give it to your wife. And so, you know, I remember going to the hospital and saying, you you never met this lady, Kath, but she is cheering you on and here's some needles and here's some. And I don't think by then she was too weak to do much knitting, but I have a picture of her holding them. And I sent it to this woman and I said, thank you so much. You've, mm. you know, so there were people who respected the person behind the disease. Mm. And I think... My advice to anybody who's, who, who sees a loved one or a friend going through this is, is you know, yeah, okay, 
X or Y has cancer or X or Y has Alzheimer's or whatever. Mm. But you, you knew them as a person first and find a way to connect with that person and support them. And yeah, we had, and then, you know, besides that we had, I had a family member who was just total radio silence all through, all through this. And then mm. when he found out that Kay had died, he said, what's your address so I can send you some flowers. And I'm like, stick your flowers somewhere, man. <laughs> I don't yeah. want the bloody flowers. Just yeah. leave me alone. Yeah. You know, you weren't any help to me then. And you weren't any help to Kay and your flowers don't mean anything. Yeah. So, you know, standing by somebody as a person and reminding them that they still are that person that you yeah. loved and admired and respected despite yeah. the disease. Yeah. That's crucial. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. You're talking about uh, this other guy. Um, I think it's often it's people's fear. They're confronted by their own, by seeing someone else suffering, they're confronted by their own mortality and, right. and people often don't know how to handle that. Uh, I mean, I've, you know, as you know, uh, last year, you know, I've just overcome prostate cancer right. and been confronted by, oh, it's difficult for me too, Mike. Yeah. <clears throat> confronted by my own mortality. Right, right. And I, you know, different people confront their own mortality in different ways. And um, I decided to translate my fear into something that I hoped would be useful for other people. Mm -hmm. And talk about the experience. So I made a series of YouTube videos, which got an astonishing response. I I was blown away by the response I got to that. Now, I, that's because I'm a particular kind of person who's, you know, kind of extrovert in some ways. And I just feel like... I don't want to go. I don't want this experience of mine, however it turns out, to be a useless experience. We were talking about giving meaning to things earlier. <laughs> I did. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to ascribe meaning to what I was going through, even if that meaning was educating other people about what the experience was like. And I was yeah. lucky. Hey, I'm. They never say you're cured, do they? But I'm in remission. I'm. Right. I'm still here doing this kind of thing, but. That I, I realized that just from my own experience of how other people reacted to the news that I had cancer, uh, and the great people exactly said, like, All right, you're still Henry, you're the Henry I've known for all these years, and I'm going to treat you like Henry, who just happens to be going through this shitty thing, right? And there were some other people who were like, Oh my right. god, you know, whoa, 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 don't want to talk about that don't want to talk about that la 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 <laughs> you know fingers in the ears yeah. and yeah. of course in psychological terms you'd say those people are avoidant in in by nature they're people who don't like to confront you know the big questions of life they don't like to be confronted by big emotions and so on and so forth okay. but in your case i mean the difference between you and i is okay i'm an atheist slash humanist but with a spiritual bent, you know, because I've been doing so much kind of meditation and mindfulness and reading about stuff, I, I'm, I'm pretty open spiritually. And I've had a couple of interesting experiences in my life that, you know, I, I, I won't just kind of say, oh, well, I must have been just totally hallucinating because they're interesting experiences that are worth exploring. But in your case, you're a man of faith and I admire your stance. You know, you said earlier on that you're a man who... 
you're a man of faith, but you're not a shove it down your throat kind of guy. You acknowledge that there are other faiths and other options available. And, you know, I and I think this is where we can tie in because I, I, I res- I've, I've changed my posture, actually. I would say that there's, there's an interesting guy called Darren Brown. He's a kind of magician, hypnotist, does all sorts of stage shows and stuff, but he's also a brilliant writer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's... Uh, written a, a, a new book that's just come out recently called a book of little book of secrets or something i think it's the title is and he's talking about how he went from being an altar boy when he was a, a lad you know brought up evangelical altar boy and did a complete vault face you know a 180 degree turn and became a devout atheist if you want to use that term you know yeah. and he's now but in his book, he, the way he describes it is rather like I feel now. I've kind of softened because I can see, as in this situation with you, how for certain people in certain situations, having faith is not a bad thing if it helps you through the kind of experience that you had, that your wife had, obviously. And I think that's the other interesting thing because there's there's two things here. On the one hand, there's you as the observer of someone who is suffering and that sense of anticipated grief that there's going to be an end point here and and the outcome's not going to be great but also from her point of view you as you said you talked about her kind of serenity about facing her own end so i'm really Mm -hmm. interested here you know this isn't a program about religion but i think faith and psychology are deeply interwoven and so how would you describe what your faith gave you and your wife in that awful situation? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, we, could have, we could have an all, whole hour just talking about that, couldn't yeah. we? Um, I mean, I, I think, Henry, that just as you said that people recoil from um, others who have cancer because they're afraid that it's infectious – or it confronts them with, you know, it, it, this is mm-hmm. one thing they, they were avoiding. That was a good word that you used. I think the same is true of, of faith for many people because it's associated with dogma and it's associated with intolerance. And uh, yeah. I, I, I've spent enough time around atheist soldiers that I get that. You know, I used to hear constantly, oh, Padre, you'll never see me in the chapel because I'll burst into flame. My stock <laughs> answer was, well, mate, that's why we have lots of fire extinguishers. <laughs> you know, um, Fantastic. For 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 Kay, and this is something that she taught me. It wasn't necessarily just um, you know some hope that there'll be pie in the sky when we die and everything will be fine. Um, I mean, the Christian faith is is, and I think like most world religions, is based on this idea that there's an there's an eternal truth that we can aspire to, mm. and in some way know, hopefully in life and and you know hopefully after death. But I think when you're when you're going through that long dark night of the soul, the the um, the promise of an afterlife is pretty remote, mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to hold on to that when you're you know when you're in pain or you're you know you're constantly sad as I was. Mm-hmm. What Kay taught me was there's a particular. Forgive me for a second. I'm this is as dogmatic as I'm going to be. There's a particular strand in Christianity which focuses upon, it's sometimes called the theology of the cross, which mm. says that that God in Jesus 
understands human suffering because Jesus experienced it himself. Mm -hmm. And there are moments in the Christian story, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier, Henry, about stories that give us meaning, right? Mm -hmm. there, there, there are points in the Christian story where even Jesus feels cut off from God, where he, he begs his father in the garden to spare him suffering, and then on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. I think honest faith gives you permission to ask those questions. It says, you know, God, you're a total bastard. You did this to my beautiful wife. Mm. You inflicted this long, lingering death on you. How could you? You're a bloody swine. There mm. were there were times, Henry, when I thought that, for sure. Mm. Um, what Kay taught me at the same time was that there there's a there, there's a closeness there's a closeness to the spirit. There's a closeness to God in suffering if we if we somehow open ourselves to it. Mm. And I think. I'm just going to put that out there as a as a profound and mysterious truth. Mm. I can't begin to explain it as well as I, I'd like to, but I saw that in Kay. Mm. And in my best moments, Henry, I sometimes thought that, you know, if, if I'm living with her through this suffering, I just have to trust that God is with me in it. Mm. And mm. I think that's a much more helpful attitude than some people have where they see suffering as some, somehow some kind of divine punishment. You, you you have cancer because you're bad. You mm. you are depressed because you didn't leave a good leave a good life. I've heard those sorts of things, and they're utter bunk. Mm. Um, you know, the the truth is that you know we all live in a world of tears. The mortality rate's hovering constantly at a hundred percent. Nobody gets out of this alive. Yeah. Um, if if we can find a way to live with those those truths, and yet feel that the world is good and life is good and God is good and and the most important thing in life is compassion, mm. then I think at the end of the day, we'll be okay. So it's really interesting that's because, what I've got. because your, um, your journey with your faith uh, is not massively dissimilar from some of the reading I've been doing mm -hmm. that explores some of the Buddhist tradition. And one of those things is radical acceptance. There's a woman called Tara Brack who's quite famous in sort of the, the mindfulness, meditation, yoga-y kind of world. Uh, some of her stuff I find a bit kind of, ooh, it's out there. Uh, but I read this book recently about radical acceptance and it, it actually affected me quite deeply because at, how you've described facing this awful situation there is effectively radical acceptance mm -hmm. that is uh, and in your case okay there's this kind of uh, a religious taste to it if you like but i would say that in any case it's going to have some kind of spiritual taste of some kind or another or you can't do it you have to kind of be in a place where you can accept that this is what happens. Now, if you're lucky, you know, as you say, no one gets out of this alive. <laughs> if you're lucky, you know, you'll be taken peacefully in your sleep, you know, in the middle of the night. And, right. you know, you, you right. know you, 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 you're... there's another strand to this as well. There's a guy at Sussex University just down the road here who's just written a fantastic book called, I think it's called Being You, all about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And the way he, you know, describes the difference between, you know, consciousness unconsciousness and death and that effectively at the moment when you die it's a bit like you you go under say you're being given a general anesthetic and you 
you know, if you're just having an operation, <laughs> touch wood, you emerge, you wake up. But that space between when they were pumping those drugs into you and then when you wake up again, you have no conscious memory of whatsoever. You have just been gone. You have been unconscious. You have lost your consciousness. And in many ways, some people would define that as a kind of death, yeah. which is, and I find, you know, I actually found that rather comforting. It's like, Oh, actually, you know, because I've obviously been confronted by my own mortality with the cancer and stuff. It's like you do something. What's it like to die? You know, right? What, right. what, what, what is that like? Uh, which is, you know, hey, that's a whole other podcast all in itself, right? <laughs> but certainly, I think that this is where I, you know, I, I say, good for you that if you and Kay found your faith useful in confronting this the worst of all possible situations then what's the harm in that you know that's the attitude i take now what's the harm in that you know i i'm not someone who would sit here and say god you religious people you're deluded what on earth do you think you're doing it's it's clearly been of use to you been of comfort in the same way as i've now realized oh actually there's some of this stuff in this buddhist tradition that's comforting and there's also this stuff in neuroscience you know about sure. consciousness and stuff which sure. is comforting and what i find fascinating is actually the way that all these things interrelate that in many ways they're just different ways of describing the same thing right uh -huh. um now obviously you know that's a few years ago now and you've started a new life coming out the other side of it you know what do you feel you've learnt along the way what do you think you've been able to find of meaning of value from the experience that you've had mike yeah that's a great question um i think i've learned a couple of things henry one is that um and th this touches on my comments earlier about marriage and relationships. Yeah. I think the best thing I've ever done in my life, the thing that I will go to my grave being the proudest of is that I was Kay's husband, hmm. that, that I, I learned something from her of compassion and loyalty and um, that I was able to, to be, you know, one of the last things she said to me was, you know, You've been so good to me. I hope you get some rest when I'm gone, I'm gone because you've worked so hard. Mm. Um, that's the best thing I've ever done. I have five university degrees. I have the Queen's Commission. You know, I've written some books and articles. Mm. Um, that's all rubbish compared to, you know, th that. Mm. The second thing I've learned, I guess, is is the idea that um, there is there's also great joy in life and. You know, I, I treasure the memories that I, I had with Kay. Mm. Uh, you don't have to be a um, you don't have to be a, a believer in an afterlife to kind of think that there's there's a sort of immortality that comes from from memory. Mm. This lovely lady who sent us the knitting needle needles. I looked at her email the other day. After Kay died, she said, "You know, we, we you know people live on in our hearts and minds, and mm. uh, that's certainly true. I'm grateful for that." I wasn't crushed by the experience in, in part because I found I found ways to find meaning into, in it. And, it. and I was surrounded by love and compassion from people, both religious and non-religious. Mm. I remember telling Kate, I, I did a lot of work in the chaplaincy with people from other religions. And I remember I had a friend who was an imam uh, and a friend who was a rabbi. And they both 
told me that their communities were going to pray for Kay. And I said to her, you know, you've got Jews and Muslims and Christians <laughs> praying for you. So you've got a lot of people in your corner. And I think the important thing, Henry, is, is at the end of the day, can you find a community that will, will rally around you? Mm. And that community can be a faith community. It can be a hobby community. It can be your mates at the pub. Mm. But find the people who you know are going to rally around you and, and cling to them. Mm. And the people that are just going to slough you off because they can't bear your bad news, they probably, they probably don't deserve much of your time anyway. Mm. Um, so I would say that. The other thing I, I would say is, it, and this is where my, my story gets a bit jammy all of a sudden, is that um, always be open to hope. So mm. there was a lady in, my, in the church that I belong to in, in Barrie, who, a lovely lady named Joy, who's husband was dying of cancer at the same time that Kay was. And we knew each other as friends. Mm -hmm. We sometimes would see each other at the hospital. You know, Randy would be going into chemo. Kay would be going into diagnostics and we'd mm -hmm. wave at each other. And um, sometimes when Joy and I were doing long vigils at the hospital, we'd meet in the cafeteria, we'd meet in a bar. We'd just, you know, say, hey, how are you? Have you eaten today? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. well, I'm married to her. Wow. We, we we discovered after, and our spouses passed, and this is kind of mysterious, within 10 days of each other. Oh, goodness. And, um, you know, we, we stayed in touch, and we discovered in December that we kind of liked each other. There were, you know, parts of that that, you know, we were probably both drinking a bit too much at the time. <laughs> you know, that, but but as that weared off, you know, because you, you find ways to cope, right? And sometimes yeah. the ways are are probably not helpful but the connection with that other person that with that um was such that we realized you know what we're still in our late 50s mm. we we love we loved our spouses but we're open to this new chapter in our lives and mm. we seem like perfect partners for each other because we understand what we've been through and so mm. sometimes we we say <laughs> there are four people in this marriage there's me and joy and randy and Kay, and mm. you know their, their photos are on the walls of our house where we live now and uh there are times when here's the thing about grief, Henry. Another thing is don't be surprised at the way it erupts when you least expect it. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, you can put your stuff in that barracks box for, for the time being, but it, it's at some point you've got to open it up and yeah. let it breathe and get rid of it. But little things are going to always remind you of that past life of that person you loved. And mm. you need to take the time to just sort of like, experience it yeah experience the pain yeah. experience the loss but also experience the gratitude that you knew that person yeah. and realize that um you're still on this earth and it's still a wonderful life and yeah. there are still ways to connect with if so you know joy's husband randy died with uh two grandchildren he barely knew because they were quite young and they don't call me granddad now, they call me Mike, but I'm effectively <laughs> their granddad. And it's, you know, I, I can't I can't tell you, Henry, how, how blessed I feel, whether it's, you know, you want to call it God's providence or whether you just want to call it a lucky break. I don't care. Mm. But I've been given a chance to um, to live a life that I never thought because Kay and I never had children. So here I am at 59. I've got two, three little kids who think of me as basically their granddad. Oh, and... Uh, um, a wonderful person to share our, my old age with. And however long we have, it could be two years, it could be 10 years. Mm. Um, I'm in. It's wonderful. 
I think um, um, there's a word you used in there that is just so key to coping with so many things in life, and that's gratitude. Yes. Uh, yes. That in the even. And that's a the, spiritual state as well, Henry. Absolutely. You know, in in the in the in yeah. the darkest places. Um, and I can remember, you know, in the last year or two, I've had a, been in a few dark places. And what's kind of helped bring me out is the gratitude I feel for the relationships I've had and have. Um, mm. And I've been incredibly lucky to have found some surprising responses from people who are good friends and um it's not always been an easy journey but gratitude counts for so much i mean my i remember back in the day my mum would have said always oh, count your blessings dear count your blessings mm-hmm. um and which was said in quite a trite way but it amounts to the same thing because actually when we when any of us think about it particularly those of us who live in the western world by and large wow we've got an awful lot to be grateful for you know from running water to electricity i mean i don't want to go into the romans what did the romans ever do for us joke you know but still quite a lot is the answer to that as a starting point but um yeah you're you're absolutely right and i can see how mike you've 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 kind of unleashed the power of gratitude um you've been through a very dark tunnel and you know here's a spiritual metaphor you've been through a dark tunnel come out into the light again and i think that's rather beautiful that you've you've been able to find love again with with someone else who was also you've shared that journey together um and yeah that's it's you know thank you so much for coming on and telling your story mike it's been absolutely extraordinary and i hats off to you that's been very courageous of you to speak so openly about what you've been through and how you've coped with it so um is there anything else you wanted to add you know as a last kind of words of wisdom for people who are inevitably we're all going to face grief yeah yeah no i i i don't i I think i've exhausted my stock (laughs) of wisdom long since Henry early in this conversation um, I, I, I will say that um, being honest with your friends and, and yourself is important I don't know you but I, I know of you and, and I was one of those people on social media kind of cheering you on when you went mm-hmm. through your prostate cancer thing and um, one of the things Henry that motivated me to reach out to you was when you did a, a podcast recently for your Patreons where you talked very openly about how You've struggled with mental health. You've struggled mm. with physical health, but you know you found a way to to get to a point where you sound strong and you sound optimistic. And I've always, when I've listened to you talking with other people, I've always admired the enthusiasm and friendliness in your voice. And I, the fact that you've been able to hang on to that, um, tells me that that you know, regardless of the fact that you and I come at this from different spiritual directions, although mm. I think there's probably more in common than we might admit. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you found ways to, uh, you found ways to, to deal with this that are enormously positive. So good on you, mate. I look forward to buying you a pint in person one day. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. I look forward to that too, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, I'm right. sure. For- oh, you're welcome. Uh, I'm sure that everyone's going to have been, uh, fascinated and moved by uh, listening to you today so thanks so much for coming on the show Mike really appreciate it thank you so much Mike All right. cheers
Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. This is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, episode 6. And today we're going to pick up the kind of subject matter that I talked about in the introduction, the subject of stories, and the stories we tell ourselves. And when those stories are troublesome, they're stories that we are creating about the future, and we call those stories anxiety. Or stories about the past, things we wish we'd done differently, and we call those stories rumination. And really... Neither of them are that helpful, are they? No. I think... Let's think about... First of all, getting ourselves nice and relaxed in the same way as we always do. So according to your choices, you could be sitting in a chair or on a cushion or standing or lying down as long as you're really comfortable. And you can meditate with your eyes closed or half open. As long as you're not focusing on anything in particular, that's fine. And we're going to start with a couple of lovely big breaths. In for four, hold for four, and out for eight. Okay? Are you ready? And in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Good. And now just breathe normally, just allowing all your muscles to relax. And if you find any places in your body that you feel a bit of tension or irritation, just Imagine you're applying a kind of soothing balm to that area. Just let it relax and go soft. So now I want to ask you whether there's anything at the moment which is troubling you. Have you got a story 
about something from your past that troubles you, that you keep going over and over in your mind. Or perhaps you're worried about something that might happen. Are you worried about a conversation that you've got to have with someone? You're worried about how they might react. Are you worried about something you've got to do? Something to do with your job or something domestic or family related or difficult conversation you've got to have with a friend. It's so easy to let our negativity bias run away with us, isn't it? So easy to imagine that, oh, it's going to go so badly, I'm going to say the wrong thing, they're going to react badly. Or if it was something in the past. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that, done that, etc, etc. Insert crisis of your own choice. What's the common denominator with these two things? The common denominator is they are beyond our control. There is nothing we can do to change what's happened in the past. And there is nothing we can do about what might happen in the future. All we can guarantee is that if we face both or either of these things with equanimity, with a sense of calm, things are much more likely to have a better outcome than if we get worked up about them, get tense about them and worry endlessly about them. Okay. So, focusing on the thing, the event, the conversation, the whatever it is that's got you worried, ruminating, or anxious, just allow it to kind of sit. You're aware of it, but it is outside you. It's just a thing. Okay. And don't try to stop yourself from thinking or feeling whatever you're thinking or feeling about it. All right. But realize, and here's the magic part, that you are not your thoughts about this thing. You become aware that this thing is separate from you. You are not your rumination. You are not your anxiety. And what I want you to do 
is as this thing's sitting, breathe regularly, breathe gently. And give yourself compassion. Feel that there's another you kind of sitting beside you or standing behind you, offering words of kindness and comfort and compassion. Soothing you. Keep breathing softly. And as these words of kindness and compassion arrive, the thing about which you're ruminating or feeling anxious. becomes smaller and moves away. If you're having trouble imagining words of kindness or compassion, well, just think, what would you say to a dear friend or relative who was in a similar position? It's all right. There's no need to worry. Whatever will happen will happen. There's nothing to worry about it. Whatever happens, you'll be able to cope with it. You're strong. You're resilient. You're kind. You're compassionate. You deserve the best. And if it's something in the past that you regret, forgive yourself. Most likely, it wasn't all your fault. Things are almost never just one person's fault. Or if it's something that happened to you? Can you find it in your heart to begin to forgive? Because by forgiving, that helps you let go of the burden. And if you're worried about something in the future, it's... You'll do your best. It will be fine. You will be able to walk away from this. It's not the end of the world, quite literally. You will find a way to deal with this, to cope with it. Hear the soothing voice within you, giving yourself kindness and compassion. 
And if there's other people involved, rather than fearing those people and fearing their reaction, see if you can find some kindness and compassion for them as well. Try and see if you can see things from their perspective. And you'll probably find that they don't think you're an awful person. That in fact they want or wanted the best outcome too. They have their own fears. They have their own anxieties. They do their own ruminating. They are human beings just as you are a human being. And our stories are the kind of stories that everyone has. But most of all, give yourself loving compassion. And if it helps, Put a hand on your heart or on your stomach. Feel that physical love, the warmth passing into you. And so we're going to end with another couple of lovely deep breaths. So we're going to breathe in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four, and out, Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So breathe normally again. And slowly open your eyes. I hope you found this meditation useful. And I hope that you feel karma about whatever's been troubling you. I'll see you next time. In the meantime, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head. 
where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you.